This is Good Together, the podcast that inspires you to create positive change in the world every day by being a conscious consumer. I'm your host, Laura Alexandra Wittig, founder of Brightly.eco, and I started this podcast a few years ago because I wanted a place to talk about the gray areas around sustainability and how being a conscious consumer can be challenging and confusing but it's totally doable. So join me in the name of reducing waste and living positively in the name of the planet. together, a big part of what we're trying to do with this podcast is to connect the dots between conscious consumerism and climate change. And we recognize that daily actions truly can make a difference. But if you're looking to get involved in even a bigger way, and you want to maybe dedicate your career to the climate, someone that we have on the podcast today is full of great advice in a huge way. Um, And this week's guest Dr. Lisa Allendale, she's coming to us from the Columbia Climate School in New York City. She is so well-versed in um, all of the questions and all of the advice you might have um, and being able to really have a positive impact on, you know, our planet through climate-based careers. So welcome, Lisa. I wonder if you can just uh, give a brief intro of yourself so we can get to know you. Sure. Thanks, Laura. Happy to be here. Um, So... As you said, I work on climate change policy. I'm actually trained as a political scientist, so I study the ways that governments uh, facilitate policymaking that can enhance climate change adaptation. So I work primarily on the adaptation side, which are policies that we might pursue to help society modify the way we operate now that the climate is different. We built civilization for a different climate than the one we're in now. And so we have a massive transformational task ahead of us uh, to transform and modify our livelihoods to better match the climate where we live. So I study that dynamic in a few different settings. Um, I study wildfire policy in the American West, and I study climate change adaptation in rural Rwanda in sub-Saharan Africa, two very different settings, but I look at the way policies that these governments are enacting can can help communities and individuals better succeed in challenging climate conditions. And I I teach at the Columbia Climate School and do research from here. I mean, that is just one of the one of the many reasons why we wanted to talk to you today, because I feel like, you know, most people when they they say, look, I've had it. I want to make even a bigger difference with my life. Like I'm going to dedicate my daily tasks and, you know, perhaps my career to the climate. There's like maybe a few sort of stereotypical ways that people can get involved and they think about becoming, you know, an environmentalist or, um, you know, somebody who's working, you know, out in nature every day or something of that, of that, you know, thought pattern. But what you just mentioned, Lisa, around the connections between you know, deep understanding of specific um, political science uh, vectors and applying them to, you know, uh, general trends of the climate is so interesting and something, of course, that I wouldn't have thought of and probably many people don't, right? I'm sure you get a lot of this. (laughs) (laughs) Yep. It's a big, big mystery if you're not in the field. 
Yeah, absolutely. And so I'm curious to know, like, when, you know, taking it back a little bit from, from your perspective, like, when you went to school for political science, and you, you really got started in your career, um, was it with the goal of ending up in climate policy? Or, you know, how did you um, get into the, the specific climate portion of your, your job? It's such a good question because it gives me an opportunity to remind everybody that the idea of working in climate change is such a new concept. I went to graduate school 20 years ago. I graduated in 2003 with a PhD in environmental policy, and we hardly ever talked about climate change. 20 years ago, this is a, a you know an advanced degree program in environmental policy, and we had I think one of the professors on the faculty was working on climate change, but out of what, 20 professors and the other ones were working on deforestation or air quality or water quality or, you know, wildlife habitat. There's so many environmental issues that our my cohorts were working on. We barely talked about climate change. And so my background was working primarily on forestry and forest health and habitat uh, that exists within forests. And I studied forestry policy. And not until years later did it start to become really obvious to me that what I was studying was climate change and that a lot of the threats to the forests were climate related and trying to understand how Yes, forests could adapt to this climate is part of it, but I'm always more interested in how the human beings can adapt um, their interactions with the forest to better accommodate a new climate. And so I started honestly drifting into that space and learning more about climate change and starting to understand the ways it was so central to the work I was already doing. And now, you know, I work in the climate school. Everything yeah. is about climate. So we've really, we've really come a long way. Absolutely. And I would imagine, too, as you were, you know, in, in really in, involved in the field, you started to realize, OK, on a large scale perspective, we talk a lot about, well, voting and making sure that, you know, um, you, you support politicians and governments that are forward thinking in the fight against climate change. But on a smaller scale, you know, as you go and um, are, are studying the specific policies that are leading to or maybe not leading to any actual impact, that's probably really empowering and, and fascinating as well, right? And probably maybe actually I'll, I'll say that sometimes maybe it's probably uh, discouraging <laughs> as well, but there's probably runs the gamut, right? <laughs> yeah, I think it's I think it's fascinating. And I, I really am such an academic that trying to understand and make sense of it is really my goal. Um, I did work for a couple of years, I worked in the advocacy sector. I worked in the nonprofit sector um, on forestry and forest protection and public lands in the American West. Um, and I really loved that work. But I then went to work in government and loved it more because I felt like working in the public sector gave me an opportunity to hear the perspectives from so many different groups. And instead of working to fight as an advocate, which was what I had been doing before that, I was instead hearing from advocates from different interest groups and trying to think about from within government, how do you balance different interests and different priorities and different needs and try to accomplish the best outcome for the greater public good? And that to me is a fascinating question. Absolutely. And, you know, there are obviously there are so many different ways to attack the problem, as it were. And, you know, you mentioned the nonprofit angle, the government angle, 
course, there's the for-profit. There's so many different factors here. But I'm curious to know, like, so with your work um, at the Columbia Climate School, uh, I'm, I'm sure you mentor, um, you know, students there, but you probably also mentor students before they even get to that point. And so when people are, are approaching you, um, you know, in the space and saying, look, I am so interested in making a positive impact on the planet, but I really don't have anywhere to start. Like, how do you start to frame, um, you know, that, that, that uh, advice for people? I think there's a myriad ways to get connected and get involved. I mean, as a starting point, let me just step back and clarify the difference between climate change mitigation and climate change adaptation, because I said in my intro that I work on the adaptation side, but I didn't explain that that's the other half of the climate change mitigation side. And the mitigation side is everything that we are doing, governments are doing, companies are doing to reduce greenhouse gas emissions to limit climate change from happening. That's the mitigation side. And this is that's really the side we hear the most about. And so usually when someone says, I want to take climate action, that's what they're talking about. They're talking about ways they can join the work to modify our economies, to decarbonize our systems so that we are less reliant on emitting carbon for everything we do, eat, breathe, and, and acquire that's the mitigation side. And there's really no end of opportunity to get involved at that level, including making personal decisions about what you buy, where you shop, what you do, and how you get to work, for example. All of those have direct impacts on emissions and the quantity of emissions. Um, but for what it's worth, I think that the much greater impact comes at a higher scale. I think the individual level matters, but we would be remiss if we told people that really the solution to climate change is just up to them. I think that's way too much pressure and stress and lets our fossil fuel companies and big, co and big countries off the hook. Uh, the truth is that the, those larger actors, the institutions and the systems are the ones that really need to be transformed into a decarbonized system. And we can fight for that in a variety of ways and we can push for that and we can learn about that in a variety of ways. Absolutely. And you're right. I mean, we, we talk about this all the time on this podcast, which is, you know, the goal of this podcast is to, you know, again, help people understand more about how to become conscious consumers, etc. But we also make sure to not let those that you just mentioned off the hook, the big organizations, the governments, etc. Like, we have to make sure that there's a balance there. And the individual shouldn't feel like it's completely just up to us as individuals. So 100% agree with you there. Um, so going back to like the, the, the thought process around, you know, sort of climate-based career finding. I mean, obviously people are going to be a little bit more familiar with, you know, perhaps a environmental engineer or somebody, environmental lawyer, et cetera. But what are, what are some other ideas or maybe some new things that you see people gravitating towards um, as they start to do this sort of, sort of career finding um, exercise? So many careers in climate now and a huge demand for experts in the field. So as a starting point, Every major company now has a sustainability office and every major company is now working to uh, capture climate goals in the way they do business and to report on their progress in a variety of ways. Some of those 
disclosures are mandatory and required, and so they have to report on emissions depending on what sector they're in. Some of them are just voluntary and maybe ways that companies are trying to attract customers by talking about their own environmentally sound practices. But all of those companies need staff in-house who can help them understand how climate change intersects with their business model. And that can be on the mitigation side. In other words, what is this company doing that is contributing to emissions? And can the company change its practices to reduce those emissions. And it can also be on the adaptation side. How is this company positioned to withstand impacts from climate change? What's going to happen to the business model as seas rise, as temperatures increase, as storms become more increased and more intense? Those risks can affect a company's bottom line pretty quickly. And so companies are getting much smarter and more nimble thinking about both the mitigation and adaptation side. And so they're hiring like mad. And we have career fairs every year here at the climate school. And we have many, many big employers looking for trained professionals to come work for them. So Lisa, this, I love hearing this because I was going to jump in and ask you like related to the corporations, like, and, and, and whether or not they have the appetite to hire people. I started hearing the term recently, and literally just recently started um, hearing about this, which is called green hushing. Are you familiar with that? Greenwashing? Green hushing. Green hushing. Yes. So that is, and it, so it's, it's legitimate in terms of if you Google that, there's a few articles about this, but it's, it's generally, it's a term for companies now being almost afraid to make public their environmental uh, progress or, uh, you know, their excitement or um, behind the scenes work to be more sustainable because they're potentially afraid of blowback from people who are saying, well, that's not enough. Or maybe they're afraid to go under the microscope as much. And so as I started to learn about this, I myself started to think about, oh, no, like, is this going to snowball into an effect where companies, you know, stop hiring for environmental related um, positions, et cetera, et cetera. And so I got into like kind of a dark place thinking about, oh my gosh, like I really hope that this is not something that's happening on a large scale. And obviously like we're we're not going to know that really, unless we're sitting at a really top level, but one uh, potential indicator of that could be a slowdown or reduction in, the amount of companies seeking to hire for these kinds of roles. So when you just told me that, I was like, oh, I'm so glad to hear it. <laughs> yeah, we're seeing the opposite. We're not seeing Good. any slowdown. We're really Good. seeing amplification really across the board. And and you know, even in the situation you described, which I think does happen, you know, a company comes out, makes a public statement that says we're net zero, and then they get critiqued because net zero usually relies on offsets, and we may have concerns about the validity or usefulness of those offsets. Those conversations are also really important. We're all learning. This is, as I said, a very new field. And so a company that five or 10 years ago would have said we're achieving net zero would have been uniformly celebrated. But now we're a little smarter. And now we say, oh, wait, what does that actually mean? Can you do more? Can we push farther? And many companies are rising to that challenge. So I think when when companies are silent about their environmental record, that also speaks volumes. 
Absolutely. And I, so I, I'm so glad to hear that because like I said, I was like, oh gosh, I really hope this is not happening in maybe the doom and gloom situation that I was reading. I can't remember. I think it was, I want to say it wasn't Vice, but one of the major publications pub had an article about this. So good to know. Um, and so it sounds to me like, yeah, I mean, there's all sorts of different ways that somebody could fold into a bigger corporation. You talked about that. Um, but then of course, there's also you know, in our show notes, uh, we were like, you know, let, let's write a list of all the jobs. And uh, you, we basically have this note that says like any job. And I think that's actually really true, especially if you consider, um, let's say you get hired at a big corporation and you're a social media marketer for them, which obviously is a very, uh, you know, pretty standard entry level job for, for folks, maybe just out of undergrad. Um, of course, if you're passionate about the climate and you're looking into that corporation's um, initiatives, you could then have an impact on the way they talk about them. Like if we're talking about this, you know, green hushing or whatever, like you could say, look, this is actually really important. And um, you've done the work. Like you're not just saying, oh, we're net zero. You've decided that you're going to reduce the amount of plastic that you put in the packaging and people should hear about that. I mean, that is one example of somebody as a quote unquote marketer, et cetera, could have a really big impact without saying I'm a climate change marketer or whatever, right? Absolutely. And I think you're you're pointing to an even larger segment of the workplace, which is climate communications. Yes. And so part of that is, yes, social media. And so having young, tech savvy, climate smart hires on staff, uh, they can help connect the work that the company is doing with these larger climate goals. And they know how to get those out in social media tidbits that, that will be read and consumed by the public. But there's also climate communications needed in a variety of other settings. I mean, we talked a little bit about journalism. You can think about um, coverage of what a company is doing. So in-house technical writers in some of the biggest companies are writing a lot about climate change and how this company is intersecting with climate change for the for the positive. Um, so climate communications is another field, and we offer courses here in climate communications, how to talk about it, how to translate complicated science information to a lay audience, how to communicate climate science in ways that are appropriate for different types of audiences. So say you want to be a teacher, say you want to be a, a public broadcaster, say you want to run a podcast, you can learn ways to talk about climate depending on what you're trying to achieve. And those are also professional skill sets that we find a lot of employers are looking for. Yeah, that's I, I love to hear that because the, there are there are so many nuances to the way that we discuss um, anything, um, especially stuff related to the climate. And you're right, like so many different ways that that could be applied to a variety of roles is, is just fascinating. And I think, um, you know, perhaps another, um, you know, overlooked career that I was, you know, personally thinking about was somebody in the, um, almost like the, the, the product development organization. So we, you know, we talked about like a quote unquote environmental engineer, and that role can be applied to, I think, a variety of industries. But let's say that you went to, um, you're in New York, let's say that you went to, um, you know, one of the, the Parsons School of Design or, you know, FITM or one of the, you know, wonderful fashion related uh, schools, or even you were just excited about um, designing physical products. When you start that job, you're going to be in charge of, you know, creating something from nothing, creating a physical product. And you can push and say, look, like, we might think that this polyester blend um, is really going to be the best, uh, you know, type of fabric to use for this up and coming sports line. 
But what if we considered a more plant-based alternative, right? And just having that uh, thought process and that frame of reference is going to be really impactful, right? I think that's absolutely right. And I think many companies are thinking that way when they're making hiring decisions. And if they want to staff up their manufacturing or production centers, they'll be really interested in people who are up to speed on the most current and climate smart dimensions of any business. And that's um, an incredibly complicated field. I mean, I like your example, right? If you're in the fashion business, there's a lot of work being done now to better understand what sustainable fashion looks like and, and what it doesn't look like. And it probably doesn't look like fast fashion. So it probably doesn't look like uh, the model we have now where a lot of us buy clothes that last, you know, six months and then they fall apart and we throw them out and we get new ones and the production cycle continues. And so not only is sustainable fashion about the materials you use in, in making clothes, but in how durable they are and what the intent for those purchases are. And then there's all kinds of other related questions like where's the plant that is going to actually make the sweater and how far do those sweaters that need to travel to where they're being sold and how is the transport occurring and who's in charge of that and what could be done to modify our transportation systems. And suddenly you're deep in the supply chain and you're yep. unpacking all the ways that your company touches climate change for better or for worse. There's a, there's a lot, a lot of untapped possibilities possibilities there. Absolutely. I was about to suggest supply chain, which is to me, pardon the uh, the entendre, but it's one of the least sexiest job titles I think anybody could think about. Supply chain. What does that even mean? It sounds quite boring, but what you just talked about, Lisa, is so important. I mean, and I'm actually excited for, I mean, we're, we've gotten very, as a society, very reliant on, yes, these fast fashion, really fast production cycles. And we rely a lot on producers that are very far away from us to create these things. And there's so many reasons for that. Um, you know, unfortunately, a lot of our manufacturing capabilities, in the United States have really been decimated because of that. But I'm excited for people to start to push more in those positions to reduce perhaps the, um, the, the uh, amount of space, uh, physical space between where the product is made and where it's sold. Um, and you know, bringing back certain, you know, factory capabilities to the United States, I think is going to be really important. Um, but also just, you know, thinking about things a little bit more holistically instead of, yes, like, okay, let's, uh, let's reduce the amount of, um, you know, uh, non uh, bio based materials in our fabrics and call that a, a day, right? That's not that's not the end of the, the, the situation. That's not the end of the, the discussion, right? <laughs> Yeah, that's right. And and there's a lot of components to it. And actually, there's been some really interesting research on food, not on fashion. So I don't know if this applies to fashion, but on Let's food, talk about food. The conventional yeah. wis the conventional wisdom is that we should shop locally, that local farmers, since we would do exactly what you just said, sort of shrink the travel distance, that must be more climate friendly. And actually, research has been showing that that's not true, that the distance traveled turns out to be a very minor piece of the overall climate footprint of any food product. So the takeaway from this is... <clears throat> It's a complicated issue and the assumptions we might make about what makes something sustainable or not sustainable or climate smart or not climate smart, what seems obvious and intuitive is not always accurate. And this is another reason why we need experts. We need people out there who can help companies understand the reality. They can do the analysis and they can point us in productive directions and help us myth bust. Absolutely. And we do a ton of that here 
I love it. And just what you just shared around, yes, local, uh, at least like backyard. Well, not backyard, because I'm sure it is still, it's great to, you know, make your own food <laughs> if you can. But uh, thinking about making, uh, you know, local farmers producing everything that we need. You're right. Like as much as it seems like that could be the answer and is what is often told uh, to consumers, when the study comes out and says, actually, you know what? It's not always the case. That is totally a um, microcosm for the, the the problem that we're trying to tackle, which is it, the black and white is not here. It, 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 this whole um, you know concept of conscious consumerism, individual impact on climate change, et cetera, is gray. And that doesn't mean that we shouldn't care and that we should just throw our hands up. It means that we do need, to your point, more experts, more people asking the question, um, and more people excited about what they're doing. And I think that's actually the, if we had to, you know, have one takeaway, I think, for this podcast, for somebody who is searching for a career in climate, I mean, we, we have this note, but it's like, what do you enjoy doing? Because if you really lean into that, it's highly, highly likely that there's going to be some type of sustainability angle that you can lean into and you can use to make a difference in that role. And to the point that you just made about talking about food, like maybe you were somebody who was very interested in farming and agriculture. And you, you heard what Lisa just mentioned about, you know, this new study coming out, maybe you go and you start to investigate that further and you start to like, yeah, that's right. Craft your role like that. That's right. It creates new opportunities. And, you know, I think it's so important that we all do what we can to remain open-minded about what we're learning. We are all still learning about this issue. And I, I sort of can't say it enough, you know, to think that we sort of understand exactly what the problem is or exactly how to fix it, um, it, it can't possibly be true. So I always tell my students to be humble, ask questions, consider yourself a learner for life. Um, some things we think we know turn out not to be true. And so in, a, in, a, in an issue like this, like climate change, where it touches everything and touches everybody, we have to be on our toes because it's changing all the time. And the things we thought we knew for sure five years ago, we don't know anymore. And that's always going to be true. So it's, it's, I think, very refreshing to me to be working in a field where I really do get to come to work every day and learn. Absolutely. And being able to have that mindset and thinking about, yes, like, you know, going into my job, everything is going to be the same every day. No, absolutely not. <laughs> not yeah. in this field. Um, and really not in this like rapidly changing landscape and ecosystem that we find ourselves in. Um, so honestly, at least this has just been so fascinating. I'm sure we could talk about this all day long. You also have now me inspired to go look and see what type of class I can take in climate communications, because I, I would I would love to learn more. <laughs> Um, but just kind of in closing, we typically like to ask our guests um, a similar question across uh, across episodes because I'm always fascinated to hear what their answer is. So, you know, my question to you is, you know, from where you sit, either, you know, in your involvement with the Columbia Climate School or even just as an individual, like what is exciting you the most about what you're witnessing in the sustainable uh, lifestyle movement going on right now? I mean, I think it's very exciting how broad and widespread it is and how many previously disconnected silos of interest are now connected. And so, you know, we're dealing with this at Columbia, where the, the Columbia Climate School is brand new. It's only been here for a couple of years. And as we're building our school, 
what we're realizing is every department around campus is relevant. So even in the English literature department, they're reading about and thinking about how we can write creatively about the climate experience. In the engineering department, they're building new tech to help capture carbon. In the biology department, they're studying the way habitats are changing on the landscape in response to changing seasons, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And what we're realizing is that every department on campus, which academia is is notorious for being siloed, where we have you know, different programs in different schools on the same campus and we never interact, we're starting to see all kinds of opportunities to collaborate. And I think it is a microcosm of the world because what we're seeing on campus here gives me an opportunity as a political scientist to interact with engineers and literature experts, et cetera. And in the world outside of academia, similarly, I think we're finding opportunities to forge solutions together with unlikely partners. And we should be open to that. Absolutely. Well, Lisa, it's been such a great conversation. Um, I, I hope that folks that are listening to this episode, uh, you know, leave it feeling, you know, energized about either, you know, going and finding a new career uh, or starting off their career, or maybe even just taking their existing career and kind of tailoring it maybe a little bit more towards the climate in, in various fashions. Because I think that's something that we can all uh, you know, work on as well. Um, but I just wanted to say thank you. Listeners, we'll include uh, links to everything like we normally do in our show notes. Uh, but really appreciate you taking the time to come chat with us today, Lisa. Thanks for having me, Laura. joining us on another episode of Good Together. To get show notes and more, head to brightly.eco slash podcast. Finally, don't forget to join in on the conversation with us on social media. You'll find us on almost everything at brightly.eco. Don't forget, we're all on this journey together, so have fun putting the planet first and stay curious.